Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio 101, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Today's show is on love, and it is in partnership with the Cortez Island Museum and Archives, and it's going to include artifacts and stories from the archives and local islanders reading for us. How exciting, (laughs) at least for me. Um, So Cortez Island is the home of CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio, but we have listeners from Quadra Island, other islands, Campbell River, Powell River, Comox Valley, and many other communities up and down the coast, as well as listeners from all over the world, including my mom in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, mom. I'd like to also take a moment to recognize and invite all of you listening from wherever you are listening to take a moment with me to thank the land that you call home and to remember those that have cared for it before you and for those that continue to care for it now. Because there is this beautiful connection between the theme of our show today, love, and the places that we live. The Cortez Community Radio Station is on the unceded territorial lands of the Klahus, Slyaman, and Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank these people, this land, and all the people who have walked this land through time and those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Thank you for that. Today's theme is love. And we've got all sorts of things for your listening pleasure. And I want you to be part of today's show. I invite you, there's going to be a a number of times where there'll be music playing um, that will make this easy. And you are welcome. And I highly invite you to call in today to share your advice on love, to share your love stories, to tell people what not to do, what to do, whatever is sort of floating your boat in the realm of love, because we just don't have the same uh, opportunities this year to kind of give verbal valentines to each other. So we can do it over the air. And I invite you to be part of that. You don't have to come be on the air. You can just call up and tell us your story uh, off air uh, during the music time, or we can put you on the air. So call up at 250-935-0200 from wherever you are, 250-935-0200, in particular in those times where you hear music, because that's when I can multitask enough to take your call. (laughs) Otherwise, it's a little hard. Um, So 
Welcome. We have in the studio with us right now Jane Newman, the Managing Director from the Cortez Island Museum and Archives. And uh, it's always exciting for me when I get to have Jane in the studio uh, because she's such a great radio person and and co-personality. So (laughs) she's giving me the air sign for that's enough. That's enough. Um, So, Jane, thank you for coming. Um, And I was hoping that you would start by just telling us a little bit about what's going on at the museum these days. Hello, neighbors. It's great to have an opportunity to chat with Manda and all of you and share the goings on. Uh, Well, the museum actually has been closed for the last few weeks since Dr. Bonnie Henry's earlier directive uh, to for everybody to try for two more weeks a while back to stay home and see if we can nip the variants in the bud and uh, whatever. So the museum decided just in solidarity to close its doors and we will reopen next Friday and Saturday. And obviously, just as before we closed, we have taken due diligence on all safety measures and people can come and browse the exhibits and uh, look in the shop and such. Uh, and feel safe doing so and and find all sorts of things to to fill their boots. So uh, anyway, there's there's that going on and, and there's any number of other things going on there at any given times where grant writing and, you know, uh, doing various projects. But one of the most exciting things that just happened recently, and I suspect that number of people that may be listening today uh, were aware of uh, this and maybe even took part in it. We did our uh, first ever online presentation by Jeanette Taylor. And uh, as many of you will know, Jeanette Taylor is an amazing historian, writer, and presenter, and a wonderful woman from Quadra Island. And she's written lots of books, The Quadra Story and um, the... um, Uh, I'm just trying to think I'm mumbling, mumbling. Anyway, her newest book is Twin Islands, History and Legacy on the BC Coast. And of course, Twin Islands is a very important location for Cortez Island because it's right across the sound from uh, Hollyhock and all of the eastern shore of Cortez Island looks out onto Twin Islands and from Easter Bluff and from everywhere, you know, Twin Islands is is something. So Jeanette gave an amazing presentation performance online and we had a few technical glitches unfortunately and we really want to put out our apologies to Mark Torrance from Twin Islands because he wasn't able to connect and of course he was just going to be part of that presentation because he's the current owner there. He was uh, one of uh, maybe very very few people that could not connect so we're really sorry that Mark couldn't join us that day but about 60 other people did join us and it was a great presentation. will be available through a link to a YouTube video of the actual Zoom presentation uh, in the next week or two on our website. So it's basically under outreach. Anybody wants to have a listen to that, it was probably overall about an hour, hour and a half, but fantastic presentation with slides and Jeanette talking about all the various aspects of the very colorful history on Twin Islands and um, also all sorts of other little snippets of question and answers and little stories that weren't part of the presentation that people brought forward in the uh, afterwards. So lots of interesting things in that and we learned uh, various things and we are pretty pleased with how many people were able to engage with that. I actually attended as well, um, which it's one of the upsides of of COVID and the way that you guys have responded because 
Um, I'm not sure I would have been able to take an hour and a half out of my Saturday most of the time to do something like this and but I was able to and and we I think we're going to hear a little bit of one of my favorite things that I learned that day which was um, the unusual one of the unusual love stories that happened is that is that coming up later James and Margaret Nixon perhaps yep yeah yeah we'll hear that little story um so <laughs> I <laughs> it that it was a fascinating presentation and um I really appreciated it and that's not the only thing that is going on at the museum actually even uh, in in this quieter time, no. Um, well, we're really active with grant writing and um, various uh, other sort of small internal projects and some large internal projects. So the archives committee uh, has been working very uh, diligently over the past year and a half on a project to digitize all of the photographs and slides in our collection, and those, along with all the other uh, material that is in our archives, will be uploaded to a database that will be available worldwide. Now that the launch of that, and it'll be available through our website, and then this you it, it brings you to this other interface, and um, it'll be very exciting uh, to see how that how people respond to that, because the archives immediately upon that launch become available to everybody. At this point now, you still have to go to the museum and use the archives uh, search. Um, you know, computer, and you can find all sorts of fascinating things and stories, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to be in situation, and you can go to Memory BC and see some stuff, but this new project is really going to color everything that's in, color in a very positive way, everything that's in our collection. And uh, the artifacts at a certain point will also be added to that database. And we're just at the, the artifacts committee has been working very diligently lately um, as well, uh, accessioning a variety of backlog, but also new artifacts that are sort of constantly um, gifted to the museum. So lots happening with both artifacts and archives at the museum. And we're going to have an exhibit that is going to be sort of a behind the scenes photography, sort of a photographer's workshop. Uh, it'll be in the main gallery. It'll be a small section of the gallery. And it will basically sort of demonstrate how a photographer will photograph the artifacts for the purposes of accessioning and putting up onto this database. So uh, there's that, that's going to be an interesting little um, space. And there will be, you know, perhaps, it, I say, live demos of it. But I'm not sure it'll come across that way, but there is a photographer that will be in the museum, possibly more during closing hours, but even during some opening hours, doing the photographs of specific artifacts that are ready for the photographing. And uh, I think that's just one small um, new exhibit that's going to happen in the coming months. That's so exciting. And so today's show, um, we you know, created together. And that really involved very little work on my part. So this is really <laughs> thanks to Jane. Um, and I and it really uses this both artifacts and the archives, if I understand correctly. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the pieces that are going to be read or they're going to be part of the show? Um, and and you know, and how, how they've come how they've birthed themselves out of the artifacts and archives that the museum has? 
Well, all right. So I could speak very briefly about a specific artifact that will come forward in today's um, today's show. And I think a lot of people will be familiar with the black wedding dress uh, from the Manson family from a very early wedding that occurred, um, that this black wedding dress is in our collection. And we currently have only an image of it in one of the exhibits. But I thought that it was an interesting story. And it was the way we uh, sort of curated this specific uh, exhibit exhibit that was then this is now uh, the the curator uh, of this exhibit the group of curators uh, sort of chose to sort of pose a question about a black wedding dress like who why would somebody choose a black wedding dress and what's the story behind that if we even know because we may not have that answer so in some ways it's it's a question as opposed to a definitive answer but uh, that's one of the artifacts and uh, there was various, um, it, it was very interesting actually trying to source love stories because I have to say I talked to various members of the board and um, various other people that I'd interfaced with over the last month uh, about love stories. And I'd had numerous people that I'd sort of boldly just say, okay, well, do you have a love story you might want to tell? And they're like, oh, lots of them, but not that I'm going to tell on the radio or they would blush. And then I started digging into um, various um, sort of periodicals, like one of them, The Howling Wolf, is where actually quite a number of the uh, stories will today will have um, been found. And there's definitely more to mine there, but I didn't have the, 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 the time to you know, go into various other places to continue looking. So um, we're really getting a, a real snapshot, and quite a few of the pieces today will be short snippets. And... The other thing I said to people was it doesn't actually need to be a love story, a human love story. How many people have a love story about the land, about the a bird, uh, about um, how they, um, you know, a, a, a meal that they love preparing and there's something about love and food and, you know, things like that. And I thought that there may be more stories forthcoming if I approached it from that direction. Uh, having said that, not really any people came forward with that but some of the stuff that I found today is a little bit more about that than it is about the human relationship love uh, and I may also read something that I wrote for the home book that was done on Cortez and it is indeed just like you said um, it does touch on my love story with my husband but it's also about my love of this place and home so it it, I can also relate to sometimes getting in to a love. It's such a big, huge emotion, even when I was trying to find music for today. You know, <laughs> there's a million songs. Where do you even begin to start with all the amazing love songs? <laughs> so um, sometimes a little angle. But I also, just right now, from Jane and I, we're putting it out to all of you. If you didn't come forward this year... We have a lot of years ahead of us where we might be asking you to share your love stories, your advice, the food you love. I like the idea of a whole Valentine's show just on food that we love. Oh, it makes my mouth water thinking about it. So um, we have a couple of different people coming in today to help read um, both things from the archive uh, as well as uh, some of their own stuff. Do you have something that you would like to start right now with with sharing with us? 
I do. I have a very small little piece that I thought would be a really great opening. Perfect. And uh, it's from it's from that Howling Wolf um, publication. I'm just getting my papers ready in front of me here. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Howling Wolf after I read this first little intro. But basically, this was 2005. And uh, it was in May 2005. And uh, it was the Cortez Island Museum and Archives that was putting sort of an advertisement into The Howling Wolf, which was published and edited by Kathy Cambridge. And I'm not 100% certain on the research of this, of how, when the, what year The Howling Wolf began and when there was no more issues being um, published. But that said, it was Cortez Island's Community News and Events Publication. And I'll read this little intro that Cortez Island Museum and Archives wrote in 2005. First comes love. Then comes marriage. Then comes whomever with a baby carriage. Do you remember that one? Skipping songs? That's how things evolved once upon a time, in the worlds of a childhood skipping chant. But did they really even on Cortez Island, where simple events sometimes seem to take on a life of their own, borrowed from a page, or a whole chapter, from the classical Murphy's Law Book of Event. How did the ocean manage to become the uninvited presence at many a wedding gathering, controlling the coming and goings of brides, grooms, and guests, not to mention ministers? There's more to that little ad, but for now, I feel like that was just a really good little intro to what we're going to cover today because some of the stuff is just about how challenging love could have been and marriages and things like that on a small island like this, isolated and at the whim and mercy of the great wind and the great sea and a great boat or, you know, whatever may be getting in the way of, of people getting from point A to point B. Uh, it's so evocative, and uh, and you're right. Even today, I find that uh, love, marriage, relationship often looks quite different uh, on this little island, as it does in many isolated places around the world, because what it takes to spend your entire life here uh, is really different, um, for whether that's like, you know, having enough partners to choose from when you're young to after you're married, being able to economically afford to stay here. Often it involves one partner leaving. Uh, then we have no high school. The school sort of, you know, fades out as you get older. So that also involves often one partner leaving. Um, and I have discovered that people have really different love and relationship stories on this island than what they look like uh, perhaps in bigger cities or bigger places where in my experience they sometimes you know you think that in big cities you're going to get these really alternative marriages or relationships or um, ways of being together but actually I feel like it's out here in these rural communities where we just have to you know, m make it work. Um, and maybe we don't get to think as much about how we make it work. But boy, do we have to figure it out anyway. So I want to know a little bit about your love story, James. <laughs> I'm, I'm springing this on her. Um, are you married? Or in a committed married, relationship? But you know, it's interesting you asked that because this morning before I came to work, Brian Scott, my partner of probably 16 years now, um, he lives here on Cortez. Uh, he's lived here for a little over a year now. And we were just talking about him. Well, we're going to file his common law on our income tax this year. 
And that will be the first time because really last year he was still in and out of um, Alberta. And uh, he, um, you know, we were just, we didn't do it. And, you know, the timing is now. And there was various reasons why we would do it. And we went back and forth on that. But so really, we've never lived together. And we've been together for 16 years. We met in Banff, which is where I was living. And we were actually colleagues for five years on a fairly big um, um, energy efficient, sustainable, very interesting uh, small housing co-op project. And Brian is a um, very, very involved in the co-op world, has been for almost his whole adult life as a consultant. And um, he's currently working a little bit um, every once in a while with uh, people on the housing committee here and having discussions about things. But he and I had this r- uh, working relationship for years in Banff for about five years. And then at the end of it, we were invited. I was going to a friend's 40th birthday party out in Canmore. And the friend said, well, bring Brian because he, you know, would come and stay in Banff and he'd, you know, not really have much to do because that wasn't his home etc and uh, so and we'd gotten to know each other really well and whatever so I said I'll invite Brian and that night at the 40th birthday party we danced pause you know that dance that dance can just do it and turn something on that's altogether unexpected and that was the beginning of a long and loving relationship that's been going for 16 years. And it was always long distance. And I won't say that it isn't somewhat difficult to be living now together. There's a lot of transition about that. And I'm sure, Brian, if you're listening to this, you know I'm doing this, saying this with the most love. But there is challenges with having had a long distance relationship for 15 years and then living together. And uh, so we're, we're ironing out all the kinks on that and we love where we are and we're both totally, um, you know, like that's one of the things is that the love we had for the, we have for the land here, for the community here, for our property here, for uh, the, 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 the work that we have here and that, it, it's just so sustaining. So all of that is part of our relationship and we're, we're growing. This makes me want to do a whole show just on long distance love. Um, And my husband and I have the opposite story where we were together for maybe almost 20 years before I moved here. And then we did the last five years long distance, um, which has just actually changed in, in, in part because of COVID he, we now like live together like we used to uh, full time. And it's really interesting isn't it like the two variations and just being able to talk about how oh yeah like we can we can love and be in these long-term committed relationships and not always be together uh and that is something that we actually have in common as your little um piece sort of alluded to to many of our four uh fathers and mothers uh on this island who also um, went through a lot of different manifestations of relationship in order to survive here, make money, et cetera. Um, so I, I, f- I feel like that's such an interesting um, nuance. And um, and and y- are, y- are you nodding your head because you're going to read something that's related to this or because something's going to come up later? 
I think this is such a great segue. Okay, perfect. Because it's a really, I mean, it's a story that many people will actually probably have heard before. It isn't a new story. Uh, it's in um, various books, uh, including probably our story um, of Manson's Landing at the museum. Um, but it's in Tidal Passages by Jeanette Taylor. And I'll read if that's fine with you, Amanda. So in... 1894, Manson's Landing and Hernando Island were listed for the first time in the British Columbia Directory, and that's the male directory. Uh, 42 men, in brackets, only men were listed in most communities, close of brackets, from as far away as Butte Inlet were on the list for Manson's Landing. There were also three traders and an engineer. 14 men were listed for Hernando. And then it goes on to say, farming was John Manson's calling, and by the mid-1890s, his future showed enough promise to allow him to return to the Shetlands to marry his childhood sweetheart, Margaret Smith. She was four years his senior, a delicate woman, who escaped the TB that took both her parents. When Margaret was orphaned, she was raised among the 20 household servants who managed the large stone house of two genteel spinsters. She maintained a polite correspondence with John in Canada. My mother was a very proper woman, and she was careful never to answer his letters in less time than it had taken him to write to her, wrote their daughter Rose. And in a little caption, there's the photo of Margaret Manson wearing the famous black wedding dress. And it says beside it in a caption that she was considered as pretty a girl as ever passed through a church door. Margaret was a servant in her adoptive home when John returned to claim her as a bride. Claim her. The newlyweds arrived on Cortez in February 1895, and I could put in brackets just in time for Valentine's Day, but I won't. He, her first sight of the island was of the blackened skeletons of trees left by a recent forest fire, surrounded by the dark green of the foreboding forest. It was a stark contrast to the treeless hillsides of the Shetlands. Margaret never stopped longing for home, as she later confessed, but with her kind-hearted and steady husband, she became a beloved member of the community. And then it goes on to say about the a preemption on the southern end, and end of the island, and he wasn't, he wasn't convinced that it was the ideal farm location. So um, after a few years living there, they wintered in Toba Inlet as logging camp caretakers. And then they stayed at Mike and Jane's farm at Gunflint Lake on Cortez. And then they lived on Middle Natch Island, which was a preempted by the Manson brothers in 1895 as a browse for their sheep. Middle Natch Island is an extraordinary place, as most of you listening will know, floating in a rain shadow on the horizon at the top end of the Strait of Georgia. The island's annual rainfall of 75 centimetres, 30 inches per year, is half that of Campbell River. We all know about the hundreds of gulls and cormorants and other birds nesting and the, you know, the yellow blooms of the cactus and huge natural meadow in the centre of the island awash with camas and white and orange lilies. Well, this sort of sets the stage. So Middle Natch's rocky shores and small stands of tr scrub trees reminded the Mansons of home in the Shetlands. Michael and John had loved the windswept island. From first sight, wrote Rose Manson McKay. John and Margaret moved there in 1897 and 98 with their young son to secure their preemption claim, which required permanent residency. 
The rocky island filled some of Margaret's longing for home, but John's frequent absences to transport sheep to market were a hardship. This is Rose, her daughter, speaking. Imagine my mother alone on this island with her small son watching her husband row away in a skiff to be gone for at least a week. I just can't even imagine deciding that you're going to homestead on Middle Natch. <laughs> I just feel like you'd feel at any moment you're going to be swept away forever. I, I, and like, I would think about these stories um, when I would be alone with my kids, you know, the, all the modern conveniences of electricity and heat in a house that somebody else built for me and, you know, food that you can get at the store. And it really did help me to kind of just buck up. Um, and yeah. in my family, also, we read a lot of historic fiction, also even with my kids. And I have always found the the even the stories for children of kind of the frontier relationships um, to be wonderful reminders of how much our expectation on love has changed. Mm. Right now, we just think that our partners are somehow miraculously going to be absolutely everything for us, right? Mm. They're going to be our entertainment, our best friends, the person who tickles our mind in you know new and exciting ways, the person who's going to financially meet us, that is going to meet us in our work, is going to meet us in our love and touch needs. And I think, wow, back then it was really pretty straightforward what we expected of our partners, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that they came home after they, you know, rode the sheep to the market and helped financially and maybe built the house or, you know, had the kids. I, um, so, uh way more complicated times and at the same time the definitions were simpler mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um uh it's well put <laughs> and so i am wondering from your own life and maybe you'll have an archival answer to this too when you have tough times in your relationship what do you have a a memory or a saying or a bit of advice that you come back to whoa i am on the spot here <laughs> This is kind of like Dear Anne or Dear Jane, <laughs> the little column on the radio station. Uh, hmm. Uh, well, you know, I require a fair bit of solitude and I feel like and, and, and that solitude is often coupled with moving my body, whether it be walking or swimming or kayaking or skiing or whatever it might be. And I feel that we need a lot of space from each other. And I think that that it's exactly as you say that I cannot expect any one person to be everything for me. So I think that what runs through my mind is what part of this dysfunction or discomfort or, you know, inability to move forward can I take responsibility for? And Brian will probably be rolling his eyes going, really, you do that? And I'm like, well, I certainly try. Um, but I really do think that oftentimes just kind of um, walking away or, you know, what are your little tiny tools? You know, what can you do with your actual physical body to remind you to hold that thought? You know, someone's irritating you or ours are little things generally. It's like the little, you know, sort of niggly things often that'll, that'll come up. And it's really just like, okay, uh, you know, 
look at the big picture. Look at how fortunate we are, what we've got going on here, how beautiful where we live is, how fortunate our lives are, and how we're in a position to be able to, you know, um, not just survive, but thrive. And we, I, I really do think it's just a matter of taking a few breaths and I sometimes do something with my fingers, you know, where I'm just going to hold my, you know, two fingers together on both hands and sort of breathe and sort of go, okay, this is so irrelevant. It's so unimportant to say something about that or to bring that up or whatever. But I also think ultimately, you know, uh, quite a bit of communication about things, but also getting the solitude that you need, getting the alone time you need, getting the space to go and do whatever really feeds you also balances out that um, challenging aspect of the relationship. It's so beautiful. Uh, this is a good moment for me to tell you that you are listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM. And this is The Love Show. We're doing it in conjunction with the Cortez Island Museum and Archives. And I'm going to give you a moment of music before we come back for our next little bit of the show some more readings and sharings. Um, and I want to remind you that I'd love to hear from you. Love stories, love tips, uh, heartbreaks, anything love-themed today at 250-935-0200. And this is a music moment, which means it's a great time to call in. Uh, this is the moment where we play our first song. So many people... Right now, I'm motivated to do shit. Found myself in a second. I found myself in a second hand guitar. Never thought it would happen. But I found myself in a second hand guitar. So I've just got to know. I truly have to know, so you got to let me know. It's your love. Friends I found, friends I found on 
Welcome back. You are listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM and on the web at CortezRadio.ca. You are listening to our love show in honor of upcoming Valentine's Day. And we are really lucky now to have longtime Cortez resident and someone who I've heard read before and is a beautiful reader. Yvonne Kep, thank you so much for being willing to join us in the studio today. My pleasure. And Yvonne, if I understand correctly, you have a, a few different pieces from the Cortez Island Museum and archives. These are archival pieces uh, that touch on the theme of love. Yes. Um, so I can you tell us what the first one is and yes. what it's about? Yes, be a pleasure. Um, and I, I'm going to read these in the name of love. And to honor St. Valentine's and for a shout out for the marvelous archives at the museum that has stored. And because the, the first story is not so old, it's from the Howling Wolf in 2001. And um, it was written by Kathy Cambridge, which many I know will remember. Do oysters affect libido? becoming the catalyst for hours of unleashed passion spent into the wee hours of the shortening spring nights. Low daytime tides arrive in the spring. It's an easy stroll down to Manson's Lagoon to pick up a bucket of, forgive me, oyster farmers, but Crassotria gaijas, Crassotria gaijas, the ultimate, the deluxe, Japanese oyster imported to the island sometime during the 60s. The consumption of these benign-looking bivalves, a term referring to the shells, not the inner workings, and why in the spring? Many uh, Cortez Islanders are tired and require afternoon naps. Some attribute spring sleepiness to long hours in the garden. One resident, however, reports that oysters are along the bedside with the strawberries, 
the whipped cream and candles. To look at an oyster, is one inspired to the heights of erotic fantasy? Well, oyster Rockefeller, barbecued oysters, oysters marinated in teriyaki sauce, oysters pan-fried in butter and garlic, or simply raw with a squeeze of lemon. (laughs) Then there's the ultimate energy shake. Take two large oysters, place in a blender with yogurt, add wheat germ and your favourite cappuccino flavouring and look out. Oh, I love it. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Has it ever worked? Do you think? <laughs> oh, I think just it, it, I think just thinking that it's going to work is going to work. And I I've always wondered about that sleepiness that comes with the spring and now I'm starting to see another dimension to it. <laughs> oh god, go for a nap. <laughs> I I also really appreciate you appreciating the archives. Because isn't that really one of the most beautiful forms of love is just to see and to hold? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Dusty old little bits of paper that could be, you know, burned in the fire just as easily. Yeah, I feel like, oh, thank you, Cortez Island Museum, for being our holder of love. Yes, exactly. That should be over the door. (laughs) (laughs) All ye who cross this threshold, the holder of love. (laughs) The the archives of love. Um, So you have more for us. What what next? So the next one um, is just lovely. I mean, the idea that is written about a couple in 1878. So there was nothing here, nothing, except wilderness and, of course, the indigenous were living here. That's, you know, but nothing in the way of ferries or, you know. So this is about Mike and Jane. Mike was batching with Lawrence and two friends when he fell in love with 17-year-old Jane Rennick, daughter of a blacksmith and a wagon maker. Jane accepted Mike's engagement ring, but when she proudly showed it to her father, he struck her hand with a poker and ruined the ring. The tale of the ring, with no mention of the harm he must have done to her hand, became family lore, as did her elopement with Mike. Jane had just stepped out the front door with her small bag when her father happened along. He wanted to know where she was going. But she threw him off by saying she was on her way to Bible class. Instead, Jane met Mike in Nanaimo Harbour from where they went to Victoria in a hired canoe a hired canoe with six native men as paddlers. Talk about romantic. They married on August the 6th, 1878. They soon returned to Nanaimo where Jane's father became reconciled to the match. He was won over by Mike's charming self-assurance. Romance deluxe. <laughs> Furious father, eh? 
Wow. Imagine that. We, we forget, uh, oh. you know, because we were talking earlier about how much uh, simpler our definitions or expectations of marriage yes. used to be or partnership, but also that sort of cruelty that went, could go along with uh, those simpler times and also how women were just kind of objects to own or possess, trade, come and collect or not. Wow. It, we haven't really come that far. <laughs> In some ways. I mean, there's still plenty of that going on. Still plenty of that going on. But we can have bank accounts in our name and property in our name. These are big steps, even if we tend to have a lot less of those things in our collective female names. Um, So that that is an amazing, amazing piece. Thank you so much for choosing that for us. And you have another. I do. But these were chosen actually by the... The, the wonderful um, director of public director, I suppose is her name, uh, Jane, you know, she's just extraordinary the way she can just gather things up and put them out. It's lovely. So this was written by Donna Ray Kennedy in 1928. I found um, an interesting little parallel, um, possible parallel, parallel with the time we're living in. So the young people would also go to other places such as Refuge Cove and Lund. It was at a dance at Refuge Cove in the fall of 1928 that Charlie's daughter Marjorie met a swell young fellow, Murray Kennedy from Powell River. They wrote many letters as Murray had to go wherever he could find work. It was hard for them to spend much time together as they had to rely on boat schedules and weather conditions to make the crossings safely. Marjorie went to Vancouver to get work. While she was there, she took sick and spent some time in hospital in isolation, which made me question if perhaps she caught the Spanish flu because that was in the air at that time, Mm. pandemic around the world. But she eventually recovered and soon returned to Cortez. Marjorie then got busy preparing for her marriage to Murray. The date was set for June 26th, but was dependent on when the CPR ferry left from Powell River. Murray had ordered a tent that was to be their home, and the wedding took place on June 1930. It was the first wedding of a white couple on Cortez. So when I said there wasn't much going on on Cortez, I meant in the white community there was plenty going on with the Clahous and the various groups that lived here before we got here. But the first wedding of a white couple on Cortez in 1928. I wonder who married them. They left soon after for their honeymoon and a life together in a logging camp. And uh, the final blit on that is no doubt. The limits of life in the wilderness. Wow. Hmm. That is... Uh, there's a lot in that. There's a lot in between the lines, isn't there? I, a lot in between the lines mm-hmm. and how you, uh, you know, as you were talking about being in isolation and which is really interesting because the last time Jane was in with the museum, we were asking about, or I was asking about what 
was in the archives um, from the Spanish flu. Right. And, and they said basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and uh, so, and this is also, they are really asking people right now to send them archival material f- about now. What is happening in people's lives now? Send them the letters, send them the, the bits, the journals, the thinking that you have now about living during this time. Because what the guess is, is that people didn't necessarily think that it was something to remember or record. And now you reading this and I wonder, oh, how much of that time is just lost between the lines? Did people think, oh, this is just the way it is. This is nothing to right. write about or think about mm-hmm. or um, uh, memorialize in some way. Mm-hmm. So uh, that- Do you know what the response has been? I Well, this would be something I can ask Jane when she comes yeah. back, but I think it's, um, people have started sending things, but Good. they need a lot more. Yes. Um, and these aren't gonna be on display. They're really to put away, yes. as we were talking before, yes. to put away so that in the future, people can come and think, what are we, like, what, what do we do? How do we remember, record, uh, recollect, you know, come read on the radio in 80 years? <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's, it's over 40 years since I touched down here. Look what's happened. Yeah. It's astounding. Yeah. So. Very, very different. Do you have, uh, do you have more pieces I for have us? I have more pieces. All right. Okay. Thank you. And so... This is dear, and I'm sure this will be dear to Doug at Ubrew's heart. So this is um, this was from 2002, The Howling Wolf, written by Charlie Papazanian. Newlyweds, try this. Who would have thought that the bees, the moon, and the magical bruise of man could combine to add to the memories of weddings? Mead, mead is the beverage of love. The drinking of mead has been held responsible for fertility and the birth of sons. I'll repeat that. Mead has been held responsible for fertility and the birth of sons. If mead were consumed for one month after a wedding, a child would be consumed and the mead maker Congratulated. The custom of drinking mead at weddings and for one month after led to the present day custom of the honeymoon. <gasps> Isn't that darling? <laughs> Interestingly, mead drinking developed quite a reputation for its ability to increase the chances of bearing sons. A special drinking cup called the Mazer Cup was handed down from generation to generation. The couple who drank from the cup would bear sons to carry on the family name and increase the male birth rate, important in the days of constant war. Fact or folly? Scientists have been doing animal experiments and have found that they can increase the chances of altering the body's pH. It is known that the acidity or alkalinity of the female body during conception can influence the sex of the newborn. 
You see, there's truth in these old tales. So pay attention, Doug. Let's get some mead on the go. <laughs> For some more honeymoons. Honeymoons. Yeah, and, and one more. Final thing. Ah, oh, love. It's so complicated. And St. Valentine always strikes me as terribly serious. I like Cupid myself. It's more playful. Cheeky, though. I have a love affair here. I have a love affair here on Cortez in this time of the COVID 2021. The air on the island right now is moist and gentle. The smell on the wind, something new is in the air. No blossoms yet, except snowflakes. My early pre-dawn time, woken from a winter sleep. The darkness stirring, ready to yield to the warming, early spring light from the tilt to the sun. The light through the snow and the ice, and the snow and the sun, and the blue sky, and the diamonds in the trees when the sun rises. This is my romantic setting for my thrill of the day. Out of the silence, a song on the breeze comes owl, calling and courting. Whoo, 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 calling and courting one another in the darkling where the cedar grandmothers set the boundary and the stream is full now. Mother Deer and one of the fawns were shot one night in January by an illegal hunter, a murderer. The one deer left is just an adolescent, with his molting pelt left peering vaguely through the fence at the kale. And of course Raven, the voice of the whole neighbourhood, there is a place for owls, and this is it, for owls to make love right next to where I sleep. The hoots are so clear, direct, haunting, and neat. I want you, you, I want you. When the hoot is echoed, when there is a return call, lying in my bed, my backbone weakens with the raw of it all. Romance in the trees calling out. Hoo, 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 hoo. Love is in the air. Oh, that is a beautiful ending. Thank you so much. And you are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is the Folk You Radio love show and we have been honored to have Yvonne Kip reading some pieces from the Cortez Island Museum and Archives collection. We're going to give you a chance to listen to some music and I would love if you wanted to call in and share a favorite thing about love, whether it's your own story, another story, a poem, whatever, this is your chance at 250-935-0200.
Welcome back. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, and this is the Folk You Radio Show. Today's show is all about love. Um, and I, uh, we, so right before the break, we heard from Yvonne Kipp, uh, who read a variety of things from the archives and also then ended with a piece that she had written uh, and it was very beautifully done. What a great reader. And now we have Jane, uh, the managing director from the Cortez Island Museum and Archives, back with us. So we have a chance to ask some of the questions that we had not quite gotten answered before. And one of the ones that came up why you were not in the room uh, that, we, that Yvonne and I were talking about is how are things going with collecting materials around this pandemic? I know that this is one of the things that you're working on, and I'm wondering about how it's going and what kinds of things you're still hoping to get. Great question. I love the now or never collecting initiative that we've got going on. And I would still say that we have a pretty skinny file on that. I know out there on Cortez Island and around the region that people have written and painted and made music, created a video, told a story, sung a song, whatever it is that was generated from the pandemic, whether it be their angst, whether it be their joy that they don't want to express because they actually love their life, even though they know that there's a lot of challenges going on in a lot of other places. Uh, there's so many ways that people may have expressed aspects of their experience of the pandemic. And as a reminder, uh, we went back into the archives from the earlier Spanish flu pandemic time, and we're able, we're unable to find anything really about how a community like Cortez or the region, any, anywhere in the region, had developed or established a resiliency in their lives because of need, because of the pandemic, because of the challenge that were associated with it. And we're just, this is just another call out to, um, you know, submit anything that you feel is relevant to your experience of the pandemic. And we will put it into our collection. I mean, we would use it like any other donation or gift to the museum where we assess whether it actually fits within our mandate. And we would include it in our files and in at a future date, we would possibly use something as, as part of an exhibition about this pandemic and this island's reaction to it, and or we would uh, possibly just keep it for future so that in the event of other pandemics, 20, 80, 100 years down the road, people would be able to look and say, well, what did this community do in 2020 and 2021 to keep themselves going? And uh, so just a call out, please feel like it's never, it's when it's now or never, well, maybe that's the wrong title. <laughs> Keep on submitting. We did just get a fabulous new submission from Dana Davis, who will be reading another uh, a poem this afternoon. And uh, it is a COVID poem. And uh, so we do have that submission in our file right now. I love it. Um, and this came up because as... Yvonne Kip was reading one of the pieces from the archives that um, from 1928, and it was a love story, so not at all 
Spanish flu related, but it mentioned the woman getting sick and needing to be in hospital in isolation for a few weeks. And we thought, oh, is this actually what's happened to so much of the material from that time where it was just between the lines? It was like not even a side note because we didn't think of it as being relevant or you know, mattering or being something to talk about. And I just thought, oh my, we really like, let's all contribute to the museum now so that we don't just let this become something that we don't talk about. Everything is important. That's it. To someone. (laughs) So you have another story. Um, This is a a story that I've heard of, um, I don't know the full thing, but I find super fascinating. And it's an, it's a, it's another Twin Island-related story. Um, is that right? It is, and it's from the new book that Jeanette has just, um, uh, it was commissioned by Mark Torrance, and it's, as I said earlier, it is Twin Islands History and Legacy on the B.C. Coast, and this is, um, I don't even have the page number here, but, oh, page, probably about page 32 in the book, and uh, the book uh, talks about and has so many images. Uh, And I think that one or two of the images that are specifically in this love story are quite, quite beautiful images. So it's definitely worth uh, a look. We have that book in our library at the museum, and we don't have it for sale on the bookshelves yet, but we we will once they've gone through a regular publisher to um, get this out into the hands of the public. So this story is about young James and his bride. And I won't give you the backstory because there's just really not enough time to develop that. But it, it really is about life on, partially on, um, Twin Islands. Young James and his bride, Margaret, joined Reverend Nixon on Twin that same year. Uh, I wish I could, I think it's maybe about 1912. They moved into Dan McDonald's cabin in Canoe Passage. A few months later, on December 3, 1912, MacDonald got full title to his preemption, and Reverend Nixon offered to buy it. MacDonald's homestead had the advantage of a much better winter anchorage for Nixon's yacht compared to the exposed waters of his preemption in Echo Bay. From this point on, MacDonald's homestead now belonged to Reverend Nixon. The isolation of their new home suited James and Margaret Nixon, in 1913, James preempted the lot to the west of McDonald's homestead where he built a small shack, as survey records show. This structure and some slashing around it were in partial fulfillment of residency requirements. But in actuality, it was likely just a guest cottage because James and Margaret continued to live in McDonald's cabin next door. McDonald's cramped cabin with its stained and peeling wallpaper with a less than idyllic was less was a less than idyllic honeymoon retreat but James's photographs capture his and Margaret's infectious delight in each other and in their new home his pictures also form a visual record of their many homestead activities each photo was carefully staged in one Margaret wears a crisp white dress with a little tie at the neck She gesticulates toward four pig carcasses hanging to cure. In another, she poses outside McDonald's cabin, 
holding several strings of plump sausages and a plate of pork pie. In others, she and James sit indoors reading or drinking tea. They lived almost exclusively from the bounty of the land and sea, hunting deer and geese, fishing from the kayak-shaped boat called Twin, raising poultry and preserving fruit. No matter the pose, when Margaret and James appear together in these pictures, they gaze fondly into each other's eyes. They were clearly in love, though they were an unconventional couple by the standards of any day. James was 23 and Margaret was a 48-year-old widow when they were married on June 6, 1912. They likely met through friends at, or at a church in Vancouver, which was James's port of call as a steamship engineer. Margaret was convalescing from surgery at the time, as she told Rose McKay of Cortez Island. She'd inhaled a parasite while living in India, where she and her first husband had been medical missionaries. Doctors had tried unsuccessfully to remove the parasite, leaving her with a heavily scarred left cheek. After her first husband died of fever in 1901, Margaret returned home to England, where she worked as a cook for a cotton manufacturer for a time. In about 1910, she followed a sister to Ontario, and on a visit to Vancouver, she met James Nixon. More trouble lay ahead for the Nixon family. This is a little advanced in the story uh, because this specifically focuses on James and Margaret again. So um, there has been some writing in between uh, what I've just finished and what this one, um, what I'm moving on to. More trouble lay ahead for the Nixon family during these years. Hundreds of Canada's young men were dying in the trenches and mud of France during World War I. But James Nixon had escaped conscription, likely because he was working on his mother's farm on Denman Island, which was classed as an essential service. This was a blessing for his wife Margaret, whose illness grew increasingly worse. In March 1917, she was hospitalized in Vancouver. Friends on Cortez heard that Margaret died on the operating table as doctors made a final attempt to remove the parasite she'd inhaled in India. But her death certificate tells a different story. Margaret died of syphilis. Her symptoms, including the damage to her nasal passages and cheek, which she'd claimed were the result of a previous surgery, are typical of the degradation of syphilis. Whoa, twists and turns. Poor Margaret. <laughs> I wonder if she knew. And, I mean, what could she have done about it, even if she had? I know. And it is unconventional. You think of that age spread. But there are quite a few people with a large age spread. The women being that much older is quite significant, but... It's quite a wonderful story. Oh, it's, it's such a beautiful story. Uh, 20, 25 years. That's the, she was 25 years older than him. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a major um, age spread. And I, I like the idea though of, of these, all these photos of them looking at each other kind of lovingly. Like they had really, I guess, only about five years or so together. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you just get the sense that this was this, that she treasured whatever this was. I don't know what her first marriage was or anything else. No. Um, 
but you really get the sense that, wow, this was something that she she treasured. And do we know anything about what happened to James after all this? Read Twin Islands, oh. History and Legacy oh, yeah. on the BC Coast <laughs> by Jeanette Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, there you go. Um, and and this is not it. We're, we, you also have uh, some more to tell us about um, the, what came up earlier, which was the black wedding dress which was not her wedding dress. This was from the other love story (laughs) um, with uh, the woman who was living, um, spent time, uh, was living on uh, Middle Natch. Yes. So this is Maggie's (laughs) dress. This is Maggie's dress. Margaret Manson. And at the, currently at the museum, um, the, the exhibit that was then, this is now, uh, has the has an image of the black wedding dress as part of the um, sort of um, timeline storyline of the Cortez Island Museum itself and what major exhibits etc we have had over uh, the many years uh, and I really like the way this particular aspect of the um, exhibit was put together and so I thought it would be kind of an interesting thing as I say what it starts with in the didactic uh, is why did Maggie dress in black for her wedding and why does she look so sad so whenever you're viewing an exhibit it's important to remember that certain perspectives or biases always going to be present depending on who is telling the story and what message they are trying to convey so if you consider an artifact like this can be interpreted differently Depending on the intentions of the curator, there's here are two different ways that the black wedding dress can be described. So message one, European traditions and technologies. Why did Maggie dress in black for her wedding? In European traditions, it was common practice for brides to wear their best dress for their wedding, regardless of what color it was. Many people intentionally chose dark colors for their clothing, much easier to keep clean than white or light colored. In 1840, England's Queen Victoria wore a white dress to her wedding. Many other Europeans adopted this style as a way to mimic the Queen and showcase their wealth and status. Why did Maggie look so sad? Film did not have the chemistry to take a photo quickly until the early 1900s. Before that, a person would need to pose for 10 to 20 minutes, depending on the lighting in order for the photo to affix to the negative. If a person was smiling and their lips quivered or moved at all, their mouth would come out looking blurred. In order to avoid this, people would hold their faces as still as possible, which was easiest to do with a relaxed expression. Try it now. Sit there for 20 minutes and smile and see if it's really going to look good. Okay, so the second message here, the other way, the other perspective that you could, you know, spin on this is metaphors and politics. Why did Maggie dress in black for her wedding and why does she look so sad? When Margaret Manson left her home in Scotland to accompany her husband to desolate shores of Cortez Island, she faced loneliness, hardship, and a disconnection from all the family traditions and relations that would have defined her everyday life in Scotland. Her black wedding dress and gloomy expression carry connotations of grief and fear. A stranger in a strange land, 
Margaret would have encountered the tension and devastation of land, water, people, and culture being ripped apart by disease, government, church, and economy. Raised in the Victorian era and considered the property of her husband, Margaret would have had very little freedom to say or do the things she wanted. She died in 1925, four years before women won the right to be considered persons in the British colony of Canada. Love that, uh, those layers that one actually, I would guess, have sort of an obligation to take on when you start thinking as a museum curator. Yeah, it's brilliant, really. It gives you so many different ways to examine and it, 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 it offers that up to the public and gives them many ways to examine. And I think that it, it just struck me as it, it, it tells the story a little bit of the wedding dress, but it really tells it from, you know, um, all these angles. And really, that is the role of a museum. I mean, is to really, of a curator or, you know, uh, anybody working with artifacts and, and archival material, and that is to interpret to the broadest public in a way, and, and in an unbiased way, to show various perspectives and then step out of what, you know, the reaction to those perspectives is. Um, be responsible for, you know, uh, making sure that people feel they, they're getting, they're understanding it. You know, the language is clear and, and, and very accessible. What really stood out for me with that is that the role that the museum helps take then in clarifying the lenses by which we're viewing the current time that we live through um, and and thereby how we make sense of history um, and how those lenses have developed. So uh, back to your current work and attempting to archive uh, things that are happening in this pandemic and how hard it is to see what the influences of the culture are in our day to day. Um, and then this becomes the work of a museum, very complicated. Can we even do it in current times, really? Who knows? But what you know you need to do is collect the material so that you can begin to do it <laughs> in the future. Um, so I'm, I, I really like that. Um, that's a, an amazing lesson and, uh, and something that's so familiar to us on Cortez and how much unpacking goes in to being part of, of keeping record of that. Yeah, that's well put. Beautifully put. I, I I love that it's the lenses and you know, I know that there's so much to learn and how to how to share perspective or view things. And you know, really as a writer or an artist or anybody that's creating their life, it's oftentimes in the immediate moment of something very difficult to actually understand it and be clear. And you we all need perspective, we all need space from it, and then time for reflection. So I, I really think that that's what we all need in this pandemic time is that to, to recognize that what we've got going is important. And it, we, we may not understand that yet, but in the future, if we have an opportunity to collect and preserve information and expression, that is an opportunity for those people in the future to look at it and interpret it with as many lenses, through as many lenses as possible. So we're going to do that thing that probably drives crazy but I'm wondering I'm thinking about um, Margaret and her much younger husband 
um, and that sort of look of adoration that they seem to give to give to each other. And I and I was thinking, oh, I wonder, um, you know, what kind of advice she would be giving to her younger lover. And I wonder for you, um, do you have do you wish there was a bit of advice that you could have like knowing who you are now go back and give your younger version of yourself or if you had a young person in your life who actually would listen to your advice when it came to love and and relationship etc if you have bits of wisdom that you wish you could share well I, I really think the, the the biggest thing is live a strong independent life have as many of your own interests and develop those interests from your place of passion, from your core, your centered. And then when you come together with other people, whether they be your lover, whether they be your friend, whether they be your family, you are in a solid place of balance within yourself that you are available to give and, and receive. You know, that, that is another thing about love is that many of us feel that we're always in a position that we, um, we want to give or we have, you know, a lot to give or we need to give or we should give or whatever. But really, it is really very much about receiving. Well, that's beautiful. Last words from the from your hat as museum director that you'd like to share with us? Yes, I just want to put a little plug in for a couple of other exciting exhibits that we have coming up because Nancy and I and the exhibit committee at the museum are currently really thrilled to be working on an exhibit about bees. So we're working title right now is listening to bees and we're going to be putting out a call to all of the beekeepers on Cortez Island and all sorts of other things that we've been collecting and we've worked a little bit with Paul Stamets already on some of the stuff that he's doing with bees and we're excited about this we feel like it's going to be a wonderful exhibit and it's going to be a wonderful piece of love and Wild Cortez is also doing a wonderful new exhibit, which is called The Big Three, about the three largest predators that we love on Cortez, bears, cougars, and wolves. And that will be happening in the spring as far as an opening, if we can do something like that. But they're work, working behind the scenes right now, Wild Cortez, to really develop that wonderful exhibit too. So we have some great offerings coming up, and we're hoping to do some more Zoom presentations and things like that to just, um, you know share, receive, you know, give and receive from our community what we can. So that's really it. I'd love to get some storytelling on the three predators going. Uh, We've got a fair amount around bears, some around wolves, and so little recorded around cougars. So I'd like to to help you get some of those stories out as part of that. Thank you so much for being here, Jane. I've loved having you. And our show is not over because we have yet another reader that Jane has helped uh, organize. So stay tuned for that while you listen to some music. And this is your last chance if you want to call in and share your own advice to young lovers, your experiences with love, your stories, uh, whatever it is, anything love-related, you can share it today at CKTZ 89.5 FM by calling in at 250-935-0200. Sarah Quiz
Questo giorno è una pazzia, ma la luna è amica mia, se ti resta un sogno da votare via. Sono in mezzo a una città, solo amici e poi chissà. Poi non basta mai, tante cose da dirsi, baciarsi e capirsi e stringersi. Poi non basta mai, si fa tardi ma dai, dove corri a Come to us from another world, from beyond the stars and the void of space. Transcendent, pure, of unimaginable beauty, bringing with you the essence of love. You transform all who are touched by you. Mundane concerns, troubles and sorrows Dissolve in your presence, bringing joy to ruler and ruled, to peasant and king. You bewilder us with your grace, 
all evils transform into goodness. You are the master alchemist. You light the fire of love in earth and sky, in heart and soul of every being. Through your loving, existence and non-existence merge. All opposites unite. All that is profane becomes sacred again. of your love, I have lost my sobriety. I am intoxicated by the madness of love. In this fog, I have become a stranger to myself. I'm so drunk, I've lost the way to my house. In the garden, I see only your face. From trees and blossoms, I inhale only your fragrance. Drunk with the ecstasy of love, I can no longer tell the difference between drunkard and drink, between lover and beloved. Welcome back to Cortez Island Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. You are listening to the Folk You Radio Show on love. We've had a wonderful show done in partnership with the Cortez Island Museum and Archives, and we still have, we've saved the best for last. We have uh, one more reader to share with us an original piece, I believe, and um, this is Dana Davis here. Dana, I know you as teacher, writer, someone with a great deal of profound insights in my experience into love, particularly um, love as it applies to children and families. And you're someone who I hold as being kind of a, a wise uh, member of our community that I feel like I could go to if I ever needed to talk about those kinds of things, which is a pretty, I think, amazing role to play. So the fact that you're here today to share a piece of your writing feels very special to me. Thank you very much for doing this. And I hope you can start by telling us a little bit about what you're sharing today and why you chose to share this. All right. Thank you, Amanda. Um, I'm going to read a poem today that is... Um, it's, it is a love poem, in a way. It's a love poem for an elder in our community who passed, Ginny Ellingson. And I wrote this poem shortly after she passed away, just over a year ago. So it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a take on love that is about relationships. So, you know, segueing in with children, it's really about um, how we build relationship with our children 
the elders pass on their connection to the children. And when they go, um, that love lives on forever. It becomes part of us. And um, so when they say love is eternal, I guess that's what they mean. So this poem about Ginny and for Ginny, um, Ginny is one of those people for me. She's a touchstone, someone that uh, her life and what she stood for will live on forever in me. Um, she was a nurse, a mother, um, a wife, a grandmother, a friend, a gardener, an inspiration, a lover of poetry. So this poem is called Golden Life for Ginny. The fragrant wind, now plums, and late roses, fading sweet peas, and flocks still standing. September, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. If it were my last season, that is, and I knew it, what would I feel? Sorrow? Clinging? Loss? Or would each in-breath, each glimpse, each petal, each tang of juicy plum be sweet nectar? Would each pear roll in my hands and be examined like a firm, delicious, golden life? Thank you. Oh, so, so beautiful. And uh, having known Jenny, I think that she would have loved all the life in that poem. And all, and I, I, I was desperately seeing if I could find this one that I have about uh, love being a rose, a song. Oh, I just see it on my th thing, so maybe we'll have time to say that. But I think, like, it's so hard to know how to find a metaphorical way of describing love because what is as big as love other than love? So uh, thank you for 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 that, um, and for being willing to share. So hard to read for me poems or are um, writing about someone that we've loved and lost and not cry. <laughs> so you've done a good job <laughs> holding it together. And I'm wondering, um, and I've also put uh, the other readers today on the spot in this, but you, as a person um, with so much lived wisdom and lived loving, in your life, if you could go back to yourself as a young woman just starting on this journey of loving and living a loving life and give yourself some advice of what to do, what not to do, what would it be? Hmm. Well, that is a deep well. <laughs> I guess what I would would say is turn to yourself, turn back to yourself and find those people who see you and gravitate toward those people 
and probably I would put more time and energy into um, connecting with the elders around me. That was kind of a lost thread in my life, and um, there was suffering because of that. So I would turn to the wise people in my community for support more than I did on my journey. I, I love it. I wish there was more ways that we made that easier for people. Um, and certainly if anybody does in this world or in this, in this, on this island, it is you. You do a lot to uh, help connect um, young people with, with just the, the experience of love, but also with elders who, who can share that. Of course, this has been a hard and strange time for that. And I'm wondering on a practical level, do you do anything this time of year to celebrate love to um, either, you know, in your relationship um, or in your, uh, your classroom? Like, what do you do this time of year around that, if anything? Oh, well, I just made 18 Valentines today. That's got to count for something. <laughs> Definitely counts for, our, for something. For our Valentine exchange on Tuesday. Um, and with my, in my own life, of course, just connecting with my, my uh, significant other. And, um, yeah, remembering, remembering to make time. Make time. Speaking of your significant other, how long have you guys been together? And oh, gee, I wasn't. I, I know. She was going to go I, 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 people, I know. Just, you know, <laughs> if it's hard to get you in, then I have to cover all the bases right now. <laughs> and what was the question? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> she's thinking about all the things that she's like not going to tell me. <laughs> How long you've been together, and if you can share anything of, of your love story. Oh, my goodness. Um, we've been together 24 years. Uh, we met on Cortez Island, and um, our love story is very interesting in that we, um, we didn't live together for the first 10 years of our relationship. Um, I was raising two young people children and um, we decided both of us very consciously that was how we were going to uh, have a relationship he was my support but we uh, he wasn't parenting my children he parented from um, the edges of our lives in a very interesting and profound way and um, after the children fledged we we started to live together and we've been um, that's been, yeah, we put our lives together at that point, and it's, it looks like it's going to go on to the end, I'd say, at this point. <laughs> One of the, um, things that's been actually quite remarkable just in this little show, both in, uh, reading some of the things from the archival material, um, as well as in Jane's, uh, sharing about her love story, little bit in my love story is how much of that living apart there is in the stories of people here on on this little community and and what I would gather is that actually from a lot of these sort of rural and isolated communities that love and how that looks even in whether it's marriage or long-term partnership you really have to 
just sort of strap it together and figure out what's going to work. And that does not always look the way that we conventionally think and hasn't, hasn't since what we had, we had stories going all the way back to uh, 1895, marked by some of the same things of, of, of living separate, needing to kind of find space um, and just sort of figure out love and relationship in non-conventional ways. Isn't that an incredible thing to be reminded of that as things continue to change, some things do not. Um, so I really appreciate you coming and uh, I, and sharing both so personally um, a beautiful poem of yours, but also a little bit about your relationship so all the rest of people can learn um, from each other. It is like a weird thing, right, about love that we don't often, you know, there's so many stories are about that first moment um, in romantic love of sort of getting together and the hot, um, you know, chemical attraction of the beginning years and, and but like, well, but what a small amount of, of any love story. <laughs> um, so you sharing some of the rest, including what happens at the after it's all gone and how the love is still going to be there. I really appreciate uh, so thank you so much. If you have last things you would like to say, I can open the airwaves to you. Um, but Dana looks like she might be about ready to run out the door. <laughs> I think that's good. Thank you, Amanda. That was lovely. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, neighbor, so much for joining us on Folk You Radio, our love edition, CKTZ 89.5 FM. It's so exciting to be able to share with you in this way, uh, you know, week after week, despite the difference. So we'll end with a little bit of music and then back to our next show. The, uh, on the, the Highway Hippie will join us for another wonderful show of his.
say that you're doing well Living down in Arkansas Got a family now they tell The old days never call you Me, I'm working for the man He ain't got the best of me I have friends and I have plans Someone's got the rest of me I still love you now and then I love you now and then When I think of you I still love you now and then I love you now and then I still love you now and then When I think of you Said a broken heart don't leave a scar myself tonight I keep my head up though it's hard all these things take a little time so I still love you now and then I love you now and then
University's talk show. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F O L K U.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. This show is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. It's embarrassing. Stupid things I can't